Welcome to another episode of Crystalline Sci-Fi. I'm TJ. I will be your humble guide on this tour across planets. Uh, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can support it on Patreon. So that's www.patreon.com slash crystalline mythos. Uh, the crystalline mythos is a science fiction mythology. Currently, there are about 150 characters. Many of them have been illustrated uh, many of them have been fleshed out. They appear in short stories and in a novel. And uh, a number of these short stories and uh, the completed novel are available on the Patreon um, as PDFs, and you can read them. Uh, it's only three bucks to sign up at our robot assistant tier. Uh, you know, and plus you'll get updates and additional content. I recommend it, and uh, it keeps the lights on around here. So please consider signing up. Okay, with that said, you can also see art on our Instagram page. That is at the underscore crystalline underscore mythos, and you can find all of this information in the show notes. Okay, so today, uh, today we've got an interview that uh, was recently recorded with John, a friend of mine. Um, John and I have known each other a long time, uh, and in the first episode we chatted about whether or not we believe aliens have visited our Earth. That was an interesting episode. In this episode, we talk about the Crystalline Mythos a bit as a project. Uh, but at the end, we also talked about time travel. So uh, I will put some of each of those discussions together for you to listen to. Okay, so I feel like I should mention this kick-ass new science fiction show I've been watching called Raised by Wolves. It's on HBO Max, and uh, Ridley Scott is involved with this show. I personally have found this to be a super awesome show, so I thought I would bring it up here on the podcast and recommend it for you guys. Um, so it centers around a couple of androids that are taken to a planet called uh, Kepler-22b after Earth gets destroyed. And uh, in, in, in total, like, holy war chaos, and that's, um, well, you'll see stuff about that in episode two. By the way, I don't work for these people. They ain't paying me. I'm just saying this because I really like this show. And, and in the last episode, we were talking about Ridley Scott, right? Well, guess what? Ridley Scott is an executive producer on the show. He directed the first two episodes. And it seems like HBO Max really gave him license to do a lot of what he wanted. Now, he's not the only one that made the show, obviously. There was a writer named Aaron Guzikowski, I believe, and he wrote the screenplays for the first number of episodes, and then the later episodes are written by other writers. But um, the point is is that you know it obviously took a whole team of people to think it through, um, but... There's so many Ridley Scott themes that you've seen in other movies he has done that are totally explored in this movie. Just crazy. Uh, as of the time of this um, 
as a, of the time of this uh, recording, only five episodes are released, but they're five damn good episodes, and so very much recommend this show. Just super cool, uh, very, uh, you know, it reminds me, back in the sort of old days when you would, or of pulp sci-fi, at least, uh, you know, those books, you pick them up, they're cheap, they're worn, the pages are all coffee-stained or whatever, uh, and they've got the cheesy, like, uh, pulp sci-fi art on the cover well this looks like that if you had that hbo budget so it's like the most out there shit but it's totally done super well so and it reminds me of the sort of mobius designs um if you've ever seen mobius's art uh very much somebody we probably should talk about on this podcast um very interesting uh, French uh, comic book uh, artist. Um, anyways, yeah, just wanted to say, check it out. It's got androids. It's got uh, planets that, you know, uh, are exoplanets uh, in that Goldilocks zone uh, that are discovered and then traveled to uh, via multiple routes. You know, you've got atheists going there and using um, the androids to uh, bring uh, to term... Uh, little fetuses in uh, in tubs of goo, and then they be, they grow up. Or uh, alternatively, you've got an arc where thousands of people uh, who are of this Mithraic faith uh, put themselves into a hypersleep for like over a decade, and then wake up and uh, go to this planet. And then you've got dangers which lurk on this planet, including skeletons of giant serpents, which dig holes and you've got weird dogs that are like aliens it's straight up trippy stuff i'm not going to say anything more about it just watch it i also think i should probably mention the dune trailer uh my reaction to the dune trailer was that it was similar in many ways to the imagery from the david lynch film um and from it but it does seem um pretty book accurate in a lot of ways, um, at least to me, it really seemed like an upgrade, actually, in every in every way, honestly. But um, you got Timothy Chalamet; he looks like an excellent Paul Atreides. Uh, you got Chani. You got Gurney Halleck. You got um, the Gonjabar. Uh, that's this box. What? Put your hand in the box. What's in the box? Pain. Oh my God! I don't want to put my hand in that box. That sounds. That sounds awful, but if you, you know, if you don't put your hand in the box, or I mean if you pull your hand out of the box prematurely when there's pain in the box, she's going to stick a needle in your neck and it's it's poisonous and you're going to die because you're an animal according to the Bene Gesserit. This is terrifying. I'm not, I don't know if I'm cut out to be the Kisat Haderach, but uh, looks great. You know, obviously movie theaters, they've been closed uh, maybe they've opened again recently and they've been performing very poorly, I am imagining, as uh, people are not wanting to gather in large crowds. But uh, this movie, Dune, when it comes out, I will go see it. I'm going to be right there in the seat um, unless it comes to a situation where I have to order it on iTunes. But whatever it is, I'm going to watch it as soon as possible. Uh, the spice must flow. We must get that that economy of movie theater tickets sold to watch Dune. It's going to be a big deal. Um, 
well, I don't know. Honestly, will audiences give a crap? I mean, it's not Star Wars. This is the anti-Star Wars. Okay, and it's going to be kind of weird, let's be honest. Dune has always been a niche thing for uh, geeks. Um, and now it's going to be, like, mainstream. Because this movie is going to be a huge success because of this, like, A-grade, super good cast. Everybody, Grandma is going to be talking about, Oh, I went and I saw Dune. The Gonja Bar. The litany against fear. I can recite the whole damn thing now. And uh, Grandma makes it makes it uncool. Unless, for some reason, it's even cooler because now we get franchise potential, right? And that's what we do in America when a movie succeeds. We sequelize it. And, uh, well, now with Marvel, I mean, we turn it into... Tw- well, I guess that's a whole universe. But that's what we do. We create universes of movies and we merchandise the hell out of them we fill our stores our walmarts or whatever it is you know our targets or all of these places with t-shirts for these franchise films we get those action figurines out everybody's got to have an action figurine of each character you can't just have one action figurine you have to have one for all of the you know all of the cast in the movie all right and then, yeah, and maybe there could be, like, the kind that you get at the store, but there's also the kind that you get with your Happy Meal. So you got to go out and get that cheeseburger and get the toy that comes with it as well. Because if you don't, well, then I guess you're not really an American. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, so the point is, is that this is this is how it works, okay? It's, a, it's called the film business, all right? It's a business. Everybody's got to make money, and it's going to be interesting if it, to see if it comes back next year. Um, I'm very curious to see what goes on with that. Okay, so now that all of that is out of the way, I guess we should just get to the conversation, right? Uh, you know, I don't know if you want to hear me just rant. I, I haven't even figured, to be honest, I have not figured this thing out. Uh, like, you talk into a microphone and people listen, like, this is ridiculous. I never thought people would listen to me in my damn life, and I still don't, so... Uh, but here is the conversation with John. All right. Okay, so I'm here with John. It looks like we're we're rolling. Uh, I guess today we, we decided that we were going to do a uh, crystalline mythos uh, deep dive for a while. And I guess suppose it would make sense if we follow that logic that I will be your guide. So how you doing, John? Great. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. I feel like <laughs> it's Saturday. I'm not working. And I'm very happy to not be working, just chilling out, you know? good feeling okay so you read the first novel and a couple of the short stories i feel like it's been a little while oh Um, yeah it's been about a year and a half yeah so you read them and i've done some updates and i've written a few more short stories since then um but you do have a sort of a working grasp of the project which is good and it's a good place to start 
my understanding of the book is kind of just a general outline at this point. I lost a lot of the like the little details and stuff, so it'd be kind of fun to to poke from the the outside like that, kind of figure out like what the story's about now as opposed to what it was about a year and a half or even more. It might have been three years ago, even. It was a long time ago. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, I, I I really don't know. I it's definitely been developed. Um, yeah, so we could start with uh, Artaro Labs, um, I suppose, or or any of the characters. Start with Penelope. All like, right. Where did, where did that whole character come from? Uh, Penelope, uh, yeah. like the development of Penelope as yeah. a character. When did it start, um, and what did what did it turn into, and yeah, just the evolution of it all. Well. Sometime in uh, 2012, I was uh, living in a trailer on the side of my parents' house for a little while after uh, I broke up with an ex-girlfriend, and and I was uh, drawing a lot of pictures. I had no job, <laughs> so but uh, I um I started drawing some comics. And I just thought, um, I, I guess I had watched like The Fifth Element and things like that were floating around in my head. And I thought I would um, do some of the comics about um, kind of anarchist characters uh, walking around the dump fighting giant robots. Like, Sounds like you had a lot of angst. I, I might have had a little bit. I, there was a punk rock element to it all, in my view. But it, from the outside, it might just sound like I was a bit of a loser. <laughs> but um, losers at one point. Yeah. Well. Anyways. Um, so yeah, I came up with Penelope, um, and I drew a number of comics. And by 2013, I had a bunch of, I had like a bunch of comics. I, I had enough time. I didn't have a job for a little while, so. I just drew um, and drew, I would listen to audiobooks of like the Lord of the Rings or whatever. And uh, I came up with uh, not only Penelope at that time, but uh, Sneak Lennox and um, like Dr. Webweaver was a, a wizard before this. And during this time, he sort of became the mechanic that we all sort of like anybody who pays attention to the crystalline mythos knows. So um I had a lot of the basics. I sort of made up a lot of the basics all the way back then in like 2013. There was a few characters that were older than that, like that I had made up before that, um, Stanley Artaro, although I called him Stanley Spontaneous before that. Um, and rather than him being the CEO of the Artaro Corporation, Stanley was more of just a uh, crazed office worker um, who was kind of insane and all that, and maybe maybe had a little bit of the salesman vibe already. Um, and Dr. Webweaver was a wizard. Yeah, in his earliest depiction. They take on personalities that reflect people that you know in, in real life. Am I wrong? A little, you're a little bit right, but mostly I don't like to go there too much because I really view my characters as um, fictional. Like I'll, I'll sometimes with the design, maybe um, there might be a little bit of this or that. I'll think of like, and, and, but yeah, I really, especially over time, I've really wanted to make the characters um, apart from the real world, you know? 
Right. I remember early on, though, you did mention a lot about like this person kind of takes on the characteristics of this person. I mm -hmm. won't name names, but like it, it, I did see that in the early development of things. Yeah, because, well, I used to draw my friends a lot and I would also um, tell a lot of, you know, if I was making movies when I was growing up, I would make movies like with Champion and or with whoever um, wanted to make the movies. And so, uh, you know, you're working with your friends, you're making characters, thinking, tailoring them to your friends. And I think, honestly, a big part of how the Crystalline Mythos came to be is... Um, as I started to grow up, you started to realize that people don't want to just make movies for free. I mean, people want to get paid. And so therefore my ability to organize people and to like make student films was becoming less and less viable. So I started just making up, uh, doing pre-production sort of. And um, so drawing characters or telling stories or, or um, even when I had access to final, uh, final draft, I would try to, you know, script things. I was sort of envisioning um, a pre-production process for uh, a movie that was likely never to get made, <laughs> you know, or, but it, then I just started writing short stories, but I just think that that's how uh, my process of making characters maybe worked back then, you know? But it evolved to the, the characters evolved to the point where they took on a life of their own. So the, the roots of all these characters, where they came from and, and then how they evolved over time. And particularly Penelope, her being the, the main character. Right. Well, she's the main character for Lucid and Machina. But at this point, um, there is no main character, you know, because in the second book, it follows Grimm. And I'm actually writing a short story following Grimm as well. I, in fact, I'd say there's a few main characters, Penelope, but also Grimm and Dr. Webweaver and... Um, I'd say the the three of them are probably the most important characters. Maybe we should focus then on just the first book because I haven't read the second book, so I don't know any of those characters and how they've evolved in that story. Right. I've only read the first book. And yeah. in that one, Penelope's number one. She's the main. Yeah, she's right? the protagonist. Yep, that's true. Um, well, let's. how about this? Um, a bit of about Penelope, right? So she's from a, a district outside of Machina called Termite Hill. And Termite Hill is kind of a, a desert climate. And um, people are crammed into these uh, sort of colony megastructure sort of super apartments. And there's a number of them. And she lives in one called the Apple Colony with her mother, uh, whose name is May Merriweather and her little brother, whose name is Hollis Curtis. And so her dad and her mom got divorced. Her dad's name is Bruce Curtis, and he remarried an android, and the android's name is Darlene, or Darlene Curtis. Um, and it's always weird when your dad remarries a, uh, an android, right? Yeah, that happens. <laughs> yeah, so, so there's some awkwardness there. Um, I think her dad runs, uh, as I envision it, envision it in my mind, he, he works somewhere in West Machina, um, probably in the Smiley District in a computer parts store. I think he probably runs a computer parts store. And okay. her, her mom lives in the, or in the Apple Colony in Termite Hill, and she doesn't actually have uh, what's called cog ship, so she can't actually 
go into Machina um, without like a voucher. Like she really normally doesn't go over there because if you don't have Cogship, uh, you could get busted just for being in Machina. So Machina has a really strong class system. It's a lot like India in a way. In certain ways, yeah. There's caste, uh, there's caste structures. A lot of it has to do with money, though, and capitalism. So it's a bit like America and a little bit like India put together um, because you can buy that uh, cog ship. You know, you can buy a lot of things. Her mom just doesn't make enough money because she sells apples and uh, herbs and tobacco. Like, she just doesn't make that much money. Okay, so you can you can grow in the society, but she just doesn't have that luxury. She, she's not able to do that for whatever reason, but you can in that society go from really low class to high class. Right. And that's essentially what the first book is about because Penelope um, goes from, well, initially, um, as I imagine, she grew up working at the markets in Termite Hill and helping her mom um, deal with sort of farm type animals. I wouldn't say f normal farm animals dealing with llamas, which carry apples <laughs> to the markets and tobacco and selling these and herbs and things and selling these products, not making much money. And then Penelope finally uh, gets cogship. She goes to the city and she becomes a waitress. And so at the beginning of the book, she's a waitress at a chain restaurant called, um, Archer Piglet's Pancake House, where her boss is a hologram uh, that's a pig. Um, and his name's Archer Piglet, right? And he's and a... The, this all happens in the main city. So it's hustle and bustle, big city vibes. And she's the small town girl there uh, working for the first time. Her first job as a waitress. And then she runs into people. So go ahead and, and elaborate on that. Yeah, that's very, it reminds me of like Luke Skywalker or something, the way you put it, because he like starts off as just a, a farm boy, doesn't know nothing about no Jedi. <laughs> small town girl living in a, a small town world or <laughs> whatever yeah. that says. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, that you, your characters have to start somewhere and then, um, and she probably works at, uh, as a waitress there for a long time, for a couple of years. And, um, and then, uh, well, I guess the Artaro Corporation uh, finds her. Uh, her neural signature is read um, just via a retinal scanner. And they determine that, hey, this person should be running a dream machine because her brain is uh, basically geared for psychic ability, which means that she'll be capable of uh, being a dream operator in a dream machine to broadcast dream advertisements for the Artaro Corporation. So that's like a big deal. And uh, it just said like, oh, this means her neural signature is set up. She's a high likelihood of being a psychic. Okay, because when I read the book, I don't, I might be wrong about this, but I don't remember that being in there. So is that a new thing? Um, no, the characters comment on it. Um, in the book, um, Beatrice Delphonic uh, finds this information right in the prologue, but it doesn't really say much about Beatrice. It, she, it just says that Webweaver uh, has been relayed this information, but he got it from Beatrice Delphonic. And um, that's Beatrice Delphonic is the head of dream operations for the Artaro Corporation. She's a member of the board and she's Dr. Webweaver's boss. 
so she relays this information to Dr. Webweaver, and then Dr. Webweaver in the prologue uh, goes to check out the situation with his robot 1K, uh, and they both go to Archer Piglets and they just order pancakes and stuff, and or the robot doesn't eat anything because it's a robot, but Dr. Webweaver orders pancakes and uh, yeah, and uh, meets Penelope, but she doesn't know who this dude is or why he's ordering pancakes. He, he goes there intentionally though to, because he, he wants to get her. He wants to scoop her up. Uh, essentially he wants to hire her, but he doesn't, um, he doesn't hire her in the prologue. He gets impatient um, just because he's like, uh, he just goes and he's like, okay, like I've seen, this is what I did today. I'll let Beatrice take care of it. And he ends up not being the one to hire her. Beatrice has to do it herself. Okay. So he kind of, so he just scopes the situation. He goes yeah. and, and, and like, so what's the time period between the retinal scan though? And, and maybe you haven't worked this out. Maybe you have between the retinal scan and him going there and wanting to scope the situation. It's not long, maybe a month, maybe two tops. Okay. So it happens all around the same time. So her life just changes instantly when she goes to the big city. Well, no, because she'd been working at Archer Piglet's um, Pancakes, and um, that's in West Onyx. That's in the city. She'd been working there for a couple of years. So these retinal scans, they're new? No, they would happen all the time. They just weren't looking for a dream operator, you know? They would just... Maybe it's like a programming thing where they, they put in a new algorithm that detected this particular... Yeah. Tri okay. Because they so were looking for somebody. You know, they're looking for somebody with that neural signature. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to carve that out a little bit. So, all right. Yeah. So he, he sees her and he doesn't hire her, but then she ends up meeting, uh, what's, what's the lady's name? Delphonic? Delphonic? Yeah, Beatrice Delphonic. At, the, at this bar. All right. Beatrice Delphonic frequents this bar called uh, the Bicentennial Bar, the Bicent or the Leavenworth Bicentennial, Bicentennial Bar. And that's in um, a very busy part of um, Machina called uh, Optera. And um, it's very fancy. And Grimm um, runs into Penelope and uh, invites her basically on a, a date. And so she goes with him and they sneak into this bar or they, yeah, they sneak into the building and they just take the elevator up to this bar. And it's a very fancy bar where very important people uh, drink. And, um, they go and uh, they order drinks and they're there and Beatrice Delphonic is in the place and she sees, um, she sees them and she orders their drinks for them. So yeah, Penelope uh, notices her or meets her for the first time officially then. You know, this lady Beatrice Delphonic is like a billionaire. So it's kind of serendipitous. Yeah, yeah. she's the top pyramid, sort of. Pretty close or, to the top. Or Stanley, Stanley's the main guy, but she's right. up there. And so there's a character in there, Grimm, that we haven't discussed. So he's, he's her boyfriend, from what I remember. Uh, talk a little bit about that and like what his, his work is, is relevant in the whole thing and, and what ends up happening with their relationship up until the Bicentennial Bar. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because right now I'm writing a short story about um, how they met. Um, you know, and they met before the events of Lucid and Machina begin, but not long before that. Um, Grimm, uh, Grimm was 
a street sweep driver by profession. So he had a really shitty job. He um, is an artistic character. So he wants to be, I guess, an oil painter, although he did all sorts of different multimedia art, I would assume, um, you know, and uh, I imagine some of it um, would have to do with like augmented reality and stuff, but he was also a big video game nerd. At, and there was an arcade and he would frequent arcades at the mega mall uh, and play like a very stupid video game called dinosaur controller where you just, it's like an MMO online virtual reality game where you drive around on dinosaurs and you like make armies and, and he was pretty good at it, even though he sucked at his normal life where he was just a street sweep all day. So very monotonous job. Um, but uh in this short story I'm working on, which is called Emotopunk, he meets her at this bar in West Onyx. It's pretty close to Archer Piglets. It's called The Wizard's Bar. And it's kind of a fantasy-themed, like a fantasy genre-themed bar. There's like a big, uh, the light fixtures on the ceiling are shaped like a dragon. So, and they don't know in Machina, like, if a dragon and a dinosaur are the same thing. They don't know anything about this stuff because the world is very different than it is in our world. And they don't know where, like in the real world, we sort of know where things like that, how they evolved in their world. They don't, I, I'm getting a bit sidetracked, but like a lot of history has been lost in the world of uh, these stories. Um, that, that there, You said something right there that said a lot about Penelope that I didn't realize. So you said she went out, she was going out. She was, so she was a partier. She liked to, she was an outgoing girl. She's not like goes to work and then goes home because that was my impression. But now, now I'm seeing that she's, she would actually go out after work and party and like drink and stuff. Maybe occasionally, I don't know how, how frequent that is. Have you kind of carved that out? Like her personality before she makes. Uh, Pen Penelope is not a shy character. You can just tell from the way she talks, she's kind of rough around the edges um she smokes um she uh yeah she was in this story she's wearing a leather jacket when when grim meets her so that's true yeah no those are things that i had forgotten then uh, yeah but but for some reason it stuck in my mind that she was sort of a homebody that's so weird because she's not no not by any means i mean <laughs> when you go to machina um I mean, well, I mean, yeah, and her house sucked. She wouldn't want to be home. Like, she might have been, I think she was a workaholic, is how she's presented at the beginning of Lucid and Machina. But um, in Emotopunk, you see that uh, she had a social life. She had a boyfriend before Grimm that um, I wrote, um, or am writing. His name's Rocco. And uh, Rocco is like a, uh, he's in a band, and, you know, so I'm kind of, I don't know. I guess I'm critiquing hipsters. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's, that's cool though. Cause you don't see very many characters like that. It's a lot of them when they're coming from the small town, the big city, they're, they're overwhelmed at first. It almost looked like she was like, bring it on. It's a different sort of approach. I like that. Yeah. All right. So, so Grim and her, what did we cover already on that? <clears throat> uh, uh, oil painter. That's relevant because after, after they meet Beatrice and things start to take off, uh, what does she do? Um, well, that's essentially when she's sort of initiated into the Artaro Corporation. She has to sign a contract. Um, and then she has to undergo training to, you know, to become a dream operator. And um, 
that's when the sort of cast of the Artara Labs crew and Chrome Crow comes into play. So that's when Dr. Webweaver um, comes into play, his, uh, his assistant um, slash the previous um, dream operator, uh, Dr. Thea Wren comes into play. And Dr. Thea Wren, I suppose right now is a good time to say something about her. She, um, yeah, she worked really hard and studied at the university to like be a dream operator and she's pretty good at it. But once they found Penelope, they, um, Penelope had a sort of innate ability to do it better than her, even with all of her studying because of her uh, brain map that we were talking about. Um, yeah, so it's sort of the, the difference between hard work, like the, the dichotomy between um, Dr. Thea Wren and Penelope Curtis is uh, sort of the dichotomy between um, hard work and, um, and uh, innate talent, you know? Okay. Um, and then also at Artara Labs, we meet uh, Janice, uh, Janice Biggs, who is a long time, um, basically, uh, she's a secretary. She's presented as a secretary, but I think as we read more about this character, we sort of discover that she's a uh, jack of all trades and a, a lab assistant and does all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and then obviously there's 1K, the robot assistant. And uh, not that he's very important, but there's also a character named Enoch Clement, who is like an old friend of Dr. Webweaver's and a colleague who studies like pharmaceuticals and stuff. But we realize that there's a bunch of people that probably work that are unnamed at Artara Lab. So it's just a big facility. And um, they've got a, a dream machine. And I suppose that the story at this point starts to describe like what a dream machine is, what dream operations is and what dream advertising is. And it's a little bit complicated, but it's, I'd say where uh, the most iconic stuff from the story comes from, right? So we get um, like a dream operator sits in a leather machine chair in a dream machine, which, and the dream machine is a dome shaped structure with a hull and um, they put on a helmet, which is called the operator helmet or the operation helmet. And uh, it's a bit like a VR uh, setup. And there's an overhead machine arm, which uh, injects the dream operator with a psychic ability inducing serum called um, viscous serum. They use uh, what's called purple viscous serum, which because it's made from a species of viscous mushroom called purple viscous mushrooms. And this allows, uh, along with the um, operator helmet, the dream operator to interface with the machine. And then, um, so the first time in the book that they do this, uh, Dr. Wren is the one in the operator chair. And Penelope just watches from the control room. And uh, yeah, and Dr. Wren makes a commercial. Um, in Machina, the world is so saturated with advertisement that the only frontier left is to advertise in the human mind. You'll be sleeping and then suddenly the Artaro Corporation or whoever pays the Artaro Corporation will pipe in commercials into your dreams. What's interesting about this, it's kind of like a Neuralink marketing program. Right. But, but the thing is, it, these people don't have, they don't have something in their brain, do they, that, that's, that's connected to the system? It's, it's biological, like they, they figured out a way to make it biological? Uh, you mean the person who receives the commercial? 
Right. Just, and that's everybody, isn't it? It's anybody who's in uh, the range of the broadcasting tower. And that might be, that's people all across Machina. So, um, so they're able to manipulate your brainwaves uh, by like without having a hard hardware attached to your head. Right. There's no way to disconnect from that system. Well, people in Machina do have a little bit of hardware in their head. Not a lot. It's a, a small neural port behind their ear. And this is part of what it means to be a cog. But um, I don't think that you have to interface with that neural port in order to um, get a dream advertisement. Um, I think the broadcasting tower does it in through a waveform. Yeah, that would just like manipulate your brain and you would pick right. it. Yeah. These are the powerful devices in the entire machino world. They're definitely uh, very important to how the whole thing works. They're one of the weirdest ideas I came up with in the development of this science fiction world, you know? Right. And so that makes Penelope hypercritical to the entire operation because she is a natural at this. And with her power combined with like the whole marketing scheme and everything, she could just take over completely. Right. Well, at least she's the most competent dream operator that they know of. And there's other ones that are really good. She's not like significantly better than, um, let me think. So there are five named in the mythology right now. There's, uh, well, there's a sixth one, but I haven't developed him very much, but there's five really uh, dream operators that I've developed. So Dr. Thea Wren is clearly not quite as good at it as Penelope, but there's a guy named Sal Powers who's also not quite as good at it as Penelope, but he's probably a little bit more, um, see, they, um, the corporation uh, keeps what's called a lucidity rating, which is a measurement of uh, your performance as a dream operator. And um, Dr. Renz is probably about a 90, maybe a 91. And then there's a guy named Sal Powers, who's probably about a 93 or a 94. And Penelope would be like a 98 or a, something like that, like some sort of, or a 99. This is the A team. Do, is there like a B team and a C team or do they only have A's? Uh, they really only want A's. But um, so, yeah, so there are probably other people who have tested uh, scoring in the 80s, but the book is just not about them because they don't probably get the job. There are probably people at places like Artaro University where people study, uh, you know, dream advertisement at university, you know? Right. So she becomes one of the elite because not right. any, just anybody can do this. Right. Like the book and the short stories so far only have named like five or maybe six people uh, who, yeah, who are qualified for this. At that point, now that her life is completely changed and she's become one of the elite, how does her life change? Like how, how did, how do, how does her daily life change? Well, pretty quickly, you notice you got a lot of money in your bank account, right? So she moves from uh, living in Termite Hill to living in um, Chrome Crow uh, nearby uh, or near to the uh, Artar Labs um, building or complex in a place called Artaro, the Artaro Labs, or no, I'm sorry, the Artaro Live-In Suites, which are very fancy penthouse apartments for uh, people who work in the tech industry, you know. And uh, she has a robot uh, servant named uh, Douglas, who's a little bit, um, 
I don't know, he's kind of a finicky, weird robot, but he'll like cook food for her and Grimm. Um, she's so rich that Grimm is like, I got to go drive the street sweep. And she, instead, she just wires him like 25,000 Stanley bucks, which is pretty similar to like $25,000. So, and she just does it because she wanted him to hang out with her, you know, and then she buys, she helps him set up, um, and this is all the way in like chapter 10, but she helps him set up a big art show and that kicks off his whole career. And book two is about him suddenly as an elite character um, because she just totally helped kickstart his whole career, you know, as an oil painter. Um, yeah, but uh, as far as, yeah, her lifestyle goes, it's just whatever that she wants to do, but she does have to work at the lab all the time. Okay, so she's doing 12-hour days? Probably sometimes, yeah, things, shit like that. And Grimm gets to kind of reap all the benefit because he doesn't, he just gets to paint all day and, and spend his 25000 living in her nice apartment, right? It's no joke. I mean, he's kind of like a spoiled, like uh, one of those, like, uh, yeah, like because she buys him a motorcycle too. <laughs> she buys herself one. She just starts to spend money. Uh, chapter 10 is called Penelope the Sellout. And the whole sort of theme is that she just isn't really like, um, I don't know, like, you know how people, sometimes when you, people, normal people, they get money, they just start to spend it in all these ridiculous ways. And sometimes it's kind of stupid and you can look at them and be like, wow, this is really ridiculous. It's sort of that scenario. Okay. So you've set a lot of order at this point. So you, now she has a great job. She has somebody in her life. She has a great housing situation. Everything's just great. Now, now comes a twist, right? Yeah. Uh, no joke. Um, I mean, the late novel, uh, first of all, it, um, you find out that there is a uh, faction um, in Machina called the Iconoclast Faction. And these people adhere to the ideology of a man named Dr. Chaz Scaife, who's a, he's a Ravel. Um, Grimm is a half Ravel, by the way. It's sort of a, a side note, but these are sort of superhumans who are a little bit taller, a little bit smarter, live a little bit longer than standard humans. They have a sort of a light gray color skin. They have a, a pointed ears and they were originally developed as a sort of science project, but now they're sort of, um, they're an elite cast of people, but Grimm is not because Grimm is only half Ravel and uh, Ravel looked down on that because they're kind of, you know, they're prejudiced against half Ravel. So, um, so, uh, but this guy, um, Dr. Chaz Scaife, he, uh, he's secretly building his own dream machine. And uh, you're just start, starting to hear the stirrings of this. Um, you, he's really behind the scenes at this point, but Ren is slowly falling into this ideology, Dr. Thea Wren, um, especially because Wren is, has this growing envy of Penelope and her innate ability to, you know, to create dream advertisements that are so top notch. Uh, Wren has sort of lost her uh, status at Artaro Labs in a way. I mean, not really, Dr. Webweaver still respects her a lot. And uh, if, you know, if she wasn't so jealous, she would still be a valued member of the lab, but she's being overcome by this jealousy. And um, she slowly, uh, yeah, begins to move away from Artara Labs and towards Dr. Chaz Scaife's uh, iconoclast project. Okay. And, and where does that lead to? Uh, conflict. 
you know, and I, I don't, I feel like I don't want to give away the end of the novel if, but uh, you know, she and uh, Penelope come into conflict with one another. That's fine. I just wanted to, I wanted to get as far as you were comfortable with because that whole, that whole beginning of the book, I was, I, I was, I'm not going to lie. I was a little skeptical. I'm like, Oh, a book, like I'm not going to get into it. It's, Cause it's rare for me to get into a book and really enjoy it. Especially if it's not a biography. I'm a nerd in that way. I like, I like biographies and things that are real and really only like Ender's Game. And when I was really young, Harry Potter, I liked, I liked those, but I only, I only read a couple of like the first three and then I, I moved on to other things. Uh, like it's really hard for me to get interested in a book and I got interested in your book and I read the whole freaking thing in like a day. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's odd for me. And so I, I think, yeah, let's not let's not go too far because you don't want to spoil it. But I, I think that's some, there's something to be said about that. And I think a lot of people that I have actually taken the time to read it experience the same thing. Yeah, and well, I think so. I mean, when you write a book, you want to write one that you'll like, so you think that other people who might have similar interests will like it. Um, obviously, I'm not super good at marketing, so. <laughs> but uh, the uh, people who have read it, the small group of people who spent the time with the book or the short stories, uh, appreciate it, and I, I like that a lot. I really like that I've gotten positive feedback from from people like you and from the people who have, uh, you know, signed up for the Patreon or just read it because I sent it around a bit, you know. Yeah. So what's the what's the next big step for you then on this? Well, I'm just continuing to chug along, to be honest with you. But uh, Emotipunk, is, I was working on that a bit this morning. I'm going to put that out. I think that adds a little bit more integrity to the um, sort of relationships between the characters, um, chiefly between Grimm and Penelope. Um, because you could read book one and see Grimm as a, uh, I don't know, he's not the main character in book one, but in the project of the crystalline mythos grim is a a big deal and um so it's from his perspective um but i'm only you know not even a third of the way through drafting that story but i've just been doing that i released another story called hypnotica uh fairly recently and i did the art with that and i'm sort of developing uh just a method where i release a short story and do the art with it or uh, I'm doing these chapter illustrations for the different chapters in the novel. And so you're, what's cool about that is that maybe eventually like I'll release a short story in the art and book two, the way I plan to release it is like a chapter at a time, just like one chapter with the art for each chapter. That way I can just, I could check off the editing with my sister or whatever. And then I can uh, release it with a piece of art and then, if I get through releasing uh, Nightmare and Machina, that's going to be a big deal. Um, and then just building a website around that and um, eventually figuring out like better ways to publish and things like that. But um, also I want to continue doing the comics I had done. I had had some time off of work during when the pandemic first hit and drew a lot of comics. But when you're working all the time, drawing comics is just not feasible. It takes all damn day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's, it's, what's interesting about right now, and I, we talked the other day, and I, I said that since everyone's kind of locked down, that it would be a great time to release something because everyone's stuck at home. But now that I think about it, I don't know if right now is the right time 
to drop it, something like that because everyone's focused on on what's happening in the world and like politics and stuff. That's the hyper the hyper focus. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people want to to focus on something imaginary right now. Mm, I think there's a market for a little bit of escapism when the world sucks so bad sometimes. There but is. yeah, but I see your point. I mean, listen, the way I view it is that. Um, it's all like a big garden and you're just, you're just tending to it. And, um, as it bears fruit, you can release that, you know, I can, I can, um, make it more available. And if people show interest, they'll, they'll show interest, but, um, it's just about improving the integrity of the project. So that might mean more character designs might mean more short stories. It might mean better ways of presenting it to people. And pod, this podcast is an example of that. Um, also, I mean, it's cool that we can just talk about, things like just science fiction or, or, or whatever movies. Um, I've had fun just talking about Batman and, or aliens recently. Uh, so, you know, cause I am just a sci-fi geek and um, it's just cool to be able to do that in general. Right. Yeah, no, you're right about that. Yeah. It's, it doesn't matter what's going on in the, the bigger world because you're tending a garden and right. your garden doesn't, the rest of the world that makes perfect sense and that's a great way to look at it i mean the only the really what i kind of have to offer and I, I see this in just like the work that i do for a living is everything's details and i and i kind of have add when it's like you'll say something and then i'll be I'll, I'll catch something in what you're saying and it could be completely devoid of the point that you're making but it's it's like a little channel that i run run down and want to carve out all the details and i i guess that's kind of really what i have to offer <laughs> in any situation it's just it's kind of just uh seeing the whole picture in a in like in the micro that makes sense and taking take instead of just the macro view of the whole thing is making a macro out of a micro right well figure out time frames and when things are happening and just sculpt it well that's something that would be fun to um explore is the timeline for instance um i mean that's a big project there's like a all right, let's, how about this? We talked about the book. Let's talk about the mythology, at, like really zoom out, you know, like, like the metaphysics of, of the universe, <laughs> things like that. Um, obviously there's a bunch of fictional religions and there's a, um, there's cities. Um, so there's Machina, but there's not only Machina, there's Plastipoli, which is similar to Machina, but more manufacturing based. There's to the east, there's the two Ravel cities, and they're called uh, Alchema and uh, Arcanica. And then in the middle of the map, there's the Crystalline Forest. And all of those um, are set upon a big continent called Enon. And north of Enon is a whole other continent, which is very icy, and it's called Iskalisk, where a lot of historical stuff has happened. And um, in this sort of steampunk novella I'm working on, um, some of the story uh, takes place there. Uh, Valor and I were talking about the question of like, okay, so is the crystalline mythos in a fantasy world or is it in a futuristic version of our world? Uh, I don't know. Actually, this would be an interesting question for you when you read, um, when you read the book, how did you picture it? I mean, you think of it as like, okay, this is the future or are you thinking this is a whole other straight up fantasy world? From what I can remember, cause it was so long ago, I, I thought at first it was based off of this world. And then 
as I got into it. And also you do have some timeline stuff that you had written out. I was like, no, this is just a whole nother solar system, a whole nother everything. And yeah, it was just a whole nother world. Had right. nothing to do. Well, neither answer is wholly correct and neither answer is wholly wrong. Um, I mean, one of the weird giveaways is that the sun is blue. So you would go, okay, well, that can't be our world. Um, unless something happened to the sun to turn to turn it blue. Um, the moon is shattered into a bunch of little pieces. So you've got a shattered moon, you've got a, a blue sun. Um, and I call the world the, the green world or the lost green world, or sometimes the green earth. So, um, but that's because the oceans are very green because there's a lot of algae content in them in the future. Um, there was some sort of apocalyptic event which happened way back in ancient history and it's called the Oros Boros. Um, yeah, so that would be about 400 years before the events of Lucida Machina, um, the Oros Boros occurs. Um, but the world at the time of the Oros Boros looks a lot more like the real world. And so I would say that the lost green world of the crystalline mythos is more related to the real world than maybe you would think at the time, um, I'm sorry, the high tech era when the main story takes place. Um, and there are giveaways on the map. There's an island called Starstruck Island. And that island sort of corresponds to Hollywood. Um, and there's another island on the east of the map called uh, Lone Star Island. And that one corresponds to where Texas was and where um, the Alamo was. There's a mountain where the Alamo used to be, basically. Okay. Uh, so now it just sounds like, okay, this is a futuristic version of the world. But so much has changed that it might as well not even be the same world and for almost inexplicable reasons. And different people in the in-world universe um, think that the world is the way it is for different reasons. There's not even a consensus. So like the Agilarians, who are the forest dwelling peoples, they believe that a dimension opened up called the Agilarian ephemeral realm and that a sort of magical pink light emanated into the universe and um, was responsible for much of the change. Uh, and similarly, there was a dark dimension which opened up in the north of the map in Iskalisk, um, by the way, which corresponds to where Greenland used to be. And that dark gate uh, also transformed the world. So there's sort of a fantastical explanation uh, that the world was transformed by two dual dimensions in battle with each other. So it's a bit okay. like, you know, Zoroastrianism or something where good and evil yin and yang are in battle with each other. Now, this place is populating other planets, well, planets, moons on other planets, right? Because paradise, is right. that still a There's the outer uh, solar system and the outer solar system has, um, yeah, the, the Paradisian colonies um, and a place called the New Bahamas. And the Paradisian colonies are a couple of moons. Uh, one of them definitely corresponds to Europa. Um, and I can't say offhand where the other ones correspond to, but they're nearby moons, probably uh, Jupiter's moons. 
and Beatrice Delphonic has used a lot of her, uh, not only her Artaro money, but um, with the assistance of her son, uh, his name's uh, Johnny Ice uh, Delphonic, and um, they've taken over the water market. Um, so yeah, there is stuff going on in space. Artaro has a space station, you know, so there's just different things. All right. So we were talking about aliens in the last podcast. Are there aliens in this world or on the, in this universe? That's such a good question. But that universe. Right. Um, well, you know, I've thought about it. Um, I created, okay, this is the only thing I could say for sure that is developed is that there are these little guys walking around called the walkie talkie <laughs> men. Right. <laughs> And they're walking around, you know, unlike anybody else. There's not a lot of them. They're very secretive and they're super intelligent. They have enlarged heads and they wear suits. And are the walkie-talkie men extraterrestrials? Well, you would know. I don't know. This is all I have to... <laughs> they're just like a mystery. So you're about 20% sure that they're aliens? <laughs> I think that they're, they're probably aliens, but I just don't know what their motivation is. I should probably write a bit more about the walkie-talkie men. I'm starting to feel more like it's it's a representation of of the Earth in the future. Right, but but it's not because how in the world can you do that, right? So you have to create a fictional version of it. You know, there are clues in the story that um, that the universe of uh, the crystalline mythos is a simulation. In fact, it's in some places, it's almost like outright set, although the Agilarians would disagree with that. Um, you know, a lot of characters in world think the idea of a simulation theory is ridiculous. But there are a group of scientists that work for the Artaro Corporation called uh, cheese theorists. And they're sort of a, um, you know, they're a little, little bit similar to the way in the real world we have string theorists and simulation theorists and people like that. And they studied quantum physics and what they found was that at the quantum level uh, that there are particles that look like little pieces of cheese and that doesn't make any sense so they're scratching their head and then they realized hey maybe these are signs from a meta universe that has something to do with our universe some relationship and um, you know I sign every I sign all the illustrations with a piece of cheese so it's like them realizing that they're fictional characters, maybe. You know, it would be wild is if in 20 years, because gaming technology and everything is, is getting closer and closer to the matrix, right? right. What, if, what, if you're what if you're building the, the concept for an entire matrix world? Like, let's say your ship blows up and right. there's three-dimensional worlds and they decide that your idea, since it was so popular and everyone likes it, that they're going to create a three-dimensional world or a perceived three-dimensional world that anybody can tap into and live in. Would you, would you want that? <laughs> and would you want to live there? <laughs> I don't think I would want to live there, although I might occasionally visit um, just by uh, gaming like anybody else. To me, that would be like the inevitable if I was some sort of billionaire, you know, but like, it's like the extreme version of where a project could go. But I do think it's a neat idea because, you know, if, if let's just be a little bit more realistic for a second, even if, um, 
just a, a group of friends, we, we were able to, we started making like a, a 16-bit a video game version, right? The same process would be at play. We'd be programming the world and the characters in the world. Uh, they would be like, obviously in the fictional narrative, they would think that they are, they have agency, that they have free will, but they are actually just, they're the result of their programming, which we would program in. And when you write a novel, in a way you are programming your characters, you're creating them. And they do have that relationship with that author, that sort of narrative relationship, just by default. Um, some writers, I think, are more conscious. Philip K. Dick is definitely a writer who thought about that after he wrote a lot of novels. And some writers never think about that. Okay, so it was about, at this point in the conversation, that we took a break and decided that when we came back from the break, we would talk about time travel for a bit. So if you want to stick around, you can listen to that. All right, so time travel. I mean, obviously, to me, the first thing that comes up is back to the future. Uh, but that's just me. For me, it's what time would I go back to? Oh. And what would I be equipped with? So go ahead, and I've thought about this quite a bit, so I, I can give my answer. But I want to hear what, what your, like, your, your answer is, your split-second your split answer on that whole thing. Cause that's a, actually a huge question when you really think about it. Right. Um, well, one thing that comes to mind, if I, um, if I had access to a time machine, uh, that I might just go back to the 1980s and go to, uh, Silicon Valley and try to beat Steve jobs <laughs> computer game. I don't know. Maybe that'd be really hard, but I could be like, yo, I got this idea. It's called the iPod, right? Like, be, just try to like map it out year by year and just try to come up with ideas a little bit earlier um, or come up with ideas for like, Hey, I get this great idea. It's called Facebook. <laughs> this is like, but um, you could do similar things in, uh, you know, if you knew how to play Beatles songs and you went back in time before them and then that's horrible. I mean, that's plagiarism, but Hey, technically you would have been there first. So, I mean, these are all just money-making schemes. Um, I guess I could uh, go back in time far enough to like, you know, see if Jesus Christ was walking around and, you know, see if I could go meet Jesus or somebody like that. Or classically people talk about killing Hitler. Right. I don't know. What ideas do you have? Now, so let's, let's say that you can only travel back. You can only travel back for, for the rest of your life. So you have to live the rest of your life out in whatever time you go to. So it's not like mm. a constant journey. That kind of changes the script a bit. So you have to commit to something. Right. Now, if you're going to commit to going back and killing Hitler, you're going to have to live in, in 1940s Germany. Yeah, so, or, so screw that, not doing it. I would right. just go back and do the 80s, man. I might go back into like, I don't know, the very late 70s and just live through the 80s. Um, I find the 80s to be a lot of fun, and I think I would probably figure out some way to get rich. So <laughs> it would be fun for me. I, uh, Yeah. Yeah, the 80s would be fun. I, so I've, I've contemplated the 80s and, like, 2013. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I've got the luxuries like my cell phone and stuff like that. I don't really want to just get rid of all that. Uh, right. And live in a time like the 80s where they didn't have any of that stuff. So th- – 
I, I've considered 2013 as one of my potential going back points. And the reason why is I just buy a bunch of Bitcoin right before mm. it blew up. And I, I mean, I, and I could also have all the sports stats. I, the sports almanac thing is the, the most genius idea for time travel, having the sports almanac, because you try to think of how many ways you can make money. You can, you need to have money to make money in the market. So you have to have the initial income, the initial income, the easiest thing that I can think of is sports betting. And so you can make, right. make a bunch of money on that and then throw that money onto, onto stocks that you know are going to blow up. So I could do Amazon and I could do, I mean, if you did 80s, Apple, early Apple, uh, just throwing a bunch of money in the right places. But Bitcoin's an easy one. It's funny, though, that when we talk about time travel, the first thing we go, we come up with is like these schemes to get rich. Like that just says something about human nature to me. Um, well, sir, it's survival. It's, it's being able to, to not die. Right. No, because you could be like, man, I'm going to go back into the Middle Ages and, you know, learn about England. And it might be really fun, but then you get cholera or you get the Black Plague and die, you know. It's not like it was – that's another thing about, like, when you think about, like, fantasy worlds. Like, people are like, oh, I'd love to go visit Game of Thrones or something. It's like, yeah, right, you're going to get your head chopped off. So the, yeah. world, the real world is in the past was very dangerous. Right. And the future is so uncertain. It's unknown. And, and I think that's why when you say time travel, people don't even consider the future most of the time. Some people do. Most mm -hmm. people. It might be the, cool, but it might be very the, scary. The past is so easy. But the, what's interesting about it is if I was to ask, let's pretend like we're ancient Roman, you know, it's year 100. And I ask you this question, you'll be like, dude, 80 BC. Without question, I'd go back to 80 BC. You wouldn't consider going forward to 2020. Right. Um, yeah. By the way, that reminds me of in Philip K. Dick um, in his, I talked about this a bit in the last podcast. Um, he felt, this is one of, you know, everybody sort of that learns about Philip K. Dick realizes he had some very strange ideas about reality. And uh, when he had his religious experience in, uh, the mid seventies, he started to picture that he was talking to a guy from around the year 70 AD named Thomas, who was talking to him in his mind. Um, and he felt that somehow that the time of the book of Acts, which was around 70 AD was mapped onto the reality of his life in Orange County or wherever he was in the seventies. So it was very strange. <laughs> um, he, felt, he came up with this idea called uh, orthogonal time. And, uh, you know, if you think about, um, Philip K. Dick didn't really write any sequels. So when you look at his um, universe, what you find is that each book is sort of a different uh, miniature universe in a, larger, in a larger meta universe that eventually uh, came to have certain rules. And uh, different periods of time, I think, in that, um, like, you know, like the idea we visit or we envision, um, right now that like everybody who's dead now they're dead, but, um, he sort of pictured it like, uh, people who were alive once might be alive right now, but th their version of the simulation is running at the same time as your version of the simulation. So it's kind of like all of our lives are parallel to each other in a big program. Okay. So, so if, 
linear, it's parallel? Um, he called it, I mean, he came up with this word, and I, it's probably a word you could look up, but um, orthogonal. And I think he would just thought you could sort of cut through time. Like if you threw some sort of, for him, it was through this religious experience um, that some being, which he called Vallis, or a vast active living intelligence system, he thought it allowed him to talk to Thomas uh, over some sort of, I don't know, psychic network. It's a very strange idea. He was obviously, he had done a lot of drugs, <laughs> but, uh, but it does make you think, uh, and, and this came into his science fiction stories that like, like a very, very strange model of how time works or time travel could work. Um, yeah. The way time and that's it's, it's, what you just said is interesting, but my, the way I see time is that if, if you were to travel back, you would almost be traveling to a copy of what was there, but it would be a, it, like, let's say you went back to the eighties, you would go back to a copy of time up until the eighties and it would, it would be parallel to the universe. So you wouldn't be in the same universe, but it would be the same people would, would exist and everything, except that you would exist at your age at that point in time. So it'd be a, a whole new line, a whole, a new, whole timeline. new timeline. Right. So, yeah. It'd be, it'd diverge like that. But it would be, that's, I guess that's the way that I would see it being realistic, like time travel. Or alternatively, you'd find out you couldn't change anything at all. Like that the timeline always happened that way where you went back in time to that moment. And as you tried to manipulate things, you actually just created the timeline that you grew up in in the first place. Okay, so you just went back to the present. Well, you went back to the past, but you couldn't, you couldn't manipulate the timeline uh, to cause it to deviate from the original timeline. The other thing that people don't consider is, is space. So when you go back in time, if, if I went back in time, well, first of all, like everyone knows that our solar system is hurling through space. It's going, it's flying. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, then also Earth is circling around the sun. So we're at any given moment, we're in a totally different space in the universe. And so if I went back to the 80s right now, uh, at this time, I would not I would be in empty space. So there would have to be a connection between going back in space and time. Hey, man, space time, time and space are one in the same, bro. <laughs> What I'm getting at is it's space time. They're the same thing. And, uh, and, but they're also separate, you know, like, cause you can conceive them both. It's interesting. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to have to consult Stephen Hawking for this one. We'll bring him on the next episode. Good luck with that. Yeah. I also just, listen, I'm not a scientist. I'm a science fiction geek. I wish I, you know, I wish I could tell you how time travel really works. <laughs> No, and the, the thing is, if you got a real scientist on, they wouldn't be able to tell you. And I'm not saying I'm a, a scientist. Not They'd at all. Like, I, I'm I a scientist, well, but I, I do own a lab coat. I do have conclusions, and I, I'm not shy about that. Mm. <laughs> but, right. but I'm also open-minded. I'm, I'm not afraid of being wrong either. Well, that leads me to a question is, do you think if you had to, like, bet money – you think uh, that time travel is something that humanity will ever be able to harness? Uh, yeah. I don't think anything's impossible. Mm. 
So you I think, yeah, well, in a realistic sense, like I'm not going to turn into a bird right now, mm -hmm. you know? but that's not realistic that I would turn into a bird right now that, that we could figure out a way to time travel. That is realistic. We've got the rest of eternity to figure it out. Yeah. When you do start, start thinking of things in terms of eternity, then you start to think, okay, I maybe like humanity, like 20,000 years in the future, we'll figure out time travel, you know, like, yeah. Let's say, let me give you a science fiction sort of um, treatment of like a potential uh, timeline where something like this could happen. So 20,000 years goes by and somewhere in there, we discover that our universe is indeed a simulation. Okay, so um, we invent devices that uh, allow us to sort of slowly cause the this sort of giant MMO RPG that we live in to, we manipulate it and cause it to glitch. And through a process of, of running these experiments that cause the universe to glitch, uh, we, um, we invent a sort of game genie that allows us to put in cheat codes. And then we sort of figure out through that process how to rewind or fast forward the timeline. Uh, now, that sounds ridiculous because our current model of the universe uh, is not a simulation. Our current, I mean, the standard sort of model that sort of I think most scientists envision as the dominant model of the universe is one where it sprouted from the Big Bang, which might be part of some larger meta-universe type structure or multiverse, right? But uh, I'm... I would contend that a lot of people would just say that they think time travel to the past would be impossible, but time travel to the future would be possible if you harnessed uh, like general relativity and shit like that. Um, or, or, you know, well, I'm traveling at the speed of light and blah, blah, blah. And then things I know in movies like interstellar, you start to see these things in play like, okay, the guy goes to outer space and he comes back and cause he was traveling so fast. He's like older now. And, but that's not to the past. You're not like, oh, I'm traveling to the days of cowboys and the old West. Like you just can't do that. And um, I think a lot of people just see that as a fiction. Um, but if the universe, like our model of the universe, which I, I do think if there's one thing we could probably bet on, it's that our model of the universe will eventually change. I don't know in what way, but the way we see the universe now is probably not so different as the way like when the Ptolemaic model was the dominant model in like Europe in let's say the 1500s when like somebody like Galileo or, or Copernicus came along. Uh, you know, those people were punished or exiled. Um, yeah, so that, that sort of thing, um, like challenging the dominant structure of uh you know the model of the universe currently people might see it differently in the future and that might be the key to how we discover time travel or something like that yeah i yeah i don't even know where to go from that, that that's this is I, I don't know time travel has always been kind of a crazy concept to me mm -hmm. movies never seem to get it right they always seem to just run into all kinds of problems when they try to do time travel 
it's easy to nitpick though, you know, mm -hmm. because they, they are just sitting in a room trying to figure a cool story out. And it's easy to just sit around like after playing Dungeons and Dragons all day, some nerd uh, playing that shit all day. And then they will go watch the movie and it's just, it's just a movie to them. These people sat around to make something interesting happen and they don't necessarily yeah. put in all of this scientific truth and stuff when we don't even know what the scientific truth would be. Some movies that come to mind is the Avengers Endgame movie, which sort of just chalked it up to being like, here's how the previous installments in our franchise worked. So our timeline, or I mean, our time travel rules are going to correspond to the fact that we have like 20 other movies. So those movies totally happened. And, you know, and then the characters get dusted or disappear and they come back five years later. And it's like, okay, like that's the way it was. And at least they established some rules, but I think they literally just established them in order for the franchise to continue smoothly. Let's say you could warp space and time and you could travel faster than the speed of light, like in an instant from, let's say you could go 50,000 light years away from earth, right? Now, when you get over there, you're gonna be 50,000 light years in the past because relative to the amount of time the light took to get there, it would also take time that long, right? And so if you went back to earth, from 50 million or yeah, say 50 million light years away. If you went back to earth after having done that, you would be another 50 million light years in the past. So you'd be a hundred million light years in the past when you got back to earth. These are some big numbers you're throwing around. <laughs> they are. And I'm probably way wrong. But well, get, I, I don't think like, uh, light. I mean, from what we understand, light doesn't, I mean, you can't go faster than the speed of light. So there's sort of, that's like a, that's one of the, big problems well that's that's the whole loophole and everyone knows it everyone's seen it they get the piece of paper and then it's like this is the universe and then you fold the universe and you get from point a to point b uh, mm. by folding bending space and time like that's that's the whole you need uh, a wormhole right right that's the loophole right the wormhole is the loophole um there's also this idea of uh quantum entanglement i think where one particle sort of moves and that corresponds to some other particle or subatomic particle that could be like you know in some whole other sector of the universe somewhere and and that seems really weird to me i mean they would move they would affect each other and that would be faster than the speed of light because they're so but this is the kind of shit that goes over my head and no it i i, I just realized i'm wrong because if you traveled, if you traveled 50 million light years away from Earth, and then you observed Earth, you would see Earth uh, 50, 100. I don't even know what number I'm saying. Let's say 50 million. I'm going to stick A zillion billion. <laughs> <laughs> so 50 million light years from Earth, you would be observing Earth from 50 million light years away. So it would be 50 million years old. But and I don't even think Earth existed. Yeah, it's four four billion years old. So it did exist. <laughs> so you would be seeing. <laughs> back then but you would just still i wish i should edit this so that some music comes on and like <laughs> it's like it's like you're uh the character from a beautiful mind and you're like figuring it all out <laughs> well this it, is I'm, this is the podcast I'm, where we invent time travel just trying to make sense of what i said because i know i'm wrong now because when you travel 50 million light years away you're just observing earth 50 50 million years ago you're not traveling back to that time you're still in now so when you go back to earth if you were to bend space and time and go back 
it would be now still. Or it would just be like a little bit later. Time wouldn't change. So you can time if time travel is possible. I think the 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 if we're able to bend, I think we're going to be able to bend space and time first, in the sense that we'll be able to travel through space faster than the speed of light before okay. we can actually time travel. But we'll be able to observe Earth before we can actually time travel back on Earth. I see some space opera, high level science fiction <laughs> in their future. All right, like in Dune, they have the uh, in Dune they have these characters called the Guild Navigators, and they consume all of this spice, and it allows them to uh, bend space and time. And I think they are either able to use wormholes or survive going through a wormhole or create wormholes. I don't know, um, but it's something like they have a sort of monopoly on uh, space travel. Like if you're going, you know, in some long distance space travel and uh it's because of that it's because of there you have something called i think it was called the holtzman effect and that's what allows them to do it and i would have to read up on it but um that's a future episode okay so it was about that time in the conversation that it cut out uh thanks john for coming on uh thanks for listening uh, maybe next time we'll talk a bit about Dune, because that was interesting. Talk about those guild navigators, especially with that movie coming out. Once again, if you listened and you like the podcast, you like, you're interested in the Crystalline Mythos as a science fiction uh, project, uh, join the Patreon. You'll be able to read the stuff there, and, uh, you know, getting readers would be fun. Um, and also building uh, a little bit of a community. So, uh, yeah, you could find the link for that in the show notes. Uh, that's patreon.com slash crystallinemythos. And, yeah, check us out on Instagram, uh, the underscore crystalline underscore mythos. Uh, you could find a link for that in the show notes as well. All right, thanks, everybody. See ya.